Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar, Supporting Older Adults with Substance Use Disorders. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on May 16, 2018. In this podcast, Jessica Gregg, Associate Professor of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, discusses opioid use disorder among older adults. Thank you. That was terrific. Um, so let's just jump right in. I'm going to talk about opioid use disorder among older adults. Next slide. Uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, the United States is in the midst of an opioid crisis. The opioids led to more than 42,000 deaths in 2016, and 40% of all opioid overdose deaths involve prescription opioids. Uh, in fact, drug overdose is now the leading cause of death for Americans under 50 years of age. So what about Americans over 50? How is the crisis affecting them? Next slide. They haven't escaped. Opioid misuse among adults age 50 and older in 2014 was higher than all years between 2002 and 2011. And the population of older adults who misuse opioids is projected to double from 2004 to 2020, from 1.2% to 2.4% based on current trends and the increase in the older adult population. I think sometimes older adults are ignored in this crisis because across age groups, in 2014, adults aged 50 or older were the least likely to misuse opioids in the past year, while young adults aged 15 to, uh, 18 to 25 were the most likely. But even though the proportion of older adults who misuse opioids is relatively small compared to young adults, the National Survey on Drug Use and Health and the, the data above suggests that opioid misuse is increasing significantly among older adults, and they are suffering the consequences. Next slide. So why is this happening? Why are opioid use disorders increasing among older adults? Some of it's just numbers. Our population's getting older. In the 1950s, less than 10% of the country was older than 65. That share will more than double to 23% by 2060. And many of those individuals will have had experience using prescription opioids and illicit opioids. So their opioid use and potentially their opioid use disorder will have begun when they were younger. If they survive to 50, they're going to be faced then with the dual challenges of aging and addiction. And in addition to that, in addition just to numbers, many older adults experience pain as they age. Getting older just hurts. And as an aside, dually eligible older adults also tend to have lower levels of family support and financial resources in comparison to beneficiaries covered by Medicare only, making the range of options available for pain management uh, likely more limited. Next slide. So to get uh, more specific about pain, 60 to 75% of older adults suffer from a chronic pain disorder and the incidence of chronic pain increases with age. This is likely one of the main drivers behind the finding that one in three recipients of Medicare Part D received a prescription opioid in 2016, with more than 500,000 beneficiaries receiving high dosages, and that average dose far exceeding the manufacturer's recommended amount. So even if a person didn't develop a use disorder as a younger adult, he or she has uh, ample opportunity to develop one later. 
And of note, dual eligible beneficiaries have approximately two times higher rates of co-occurring substance use disorder and chronic pain relative to beneficiaries with Medicare only, and about six times higher rates relative to adults with disabilities who have Medicaid only. So they're particularly at risk. Uh, next slide. So opioid use and opioid use disorder uh, is clearly a problem among older adults. But to be clear, that doesn't mean that no older adult should receive opioids. They should receive them if they're indicated. But the use of opioids, particularly at higher dosages, and particularly over a longer period of time, carries risk. It carries risks inherent in the drugs themselves, so sedation, constipation, falls, overdose. Next slide. And it carries risks in terms of addiction. Medicare beneficiaries have among the highest and fastest growing rates of diagnosed opioid use disorder in the country at more than six of every thousand beneficiaries. And from 2005 to 2014, individuals aged 65 and older experienced an increase in inpatient stays related to opioid use. That was an 85% increase. And emergency department visits for related opioid use, which was a 12 the highest rate of opioid-related inpatient stays was among individuals age 65 and older. Next slide. So opioid use disorder and misuse of opioids among older Americans is clearly a problem, but what do you do? In addition to more judicious prescribing, we need to recognize and treat opioid use disorder when it exists. In the interest of time, I'm going to refer you to the CDC guidelines for prescribing, uh, prescribing guidance, and I'll focus the rest of my talk on how to know when use becomes disordered and what to do when it's diagnosed. Next slide. So first, let's review how we diagnose substance use disorders. We use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, the version now is the DSM-5 which provides a standardized way to understand substance use disorders and mental illness. And according to the DSM-5, there are 11 criteria that determine whether or not use is disordered. So let's go ahead and review them. Next slide. The first four are taking in larger amounts or for longer than intended, unsuccessful efforts to cut down, spending a lot of time obtaining the substance, and craving or strong desire to use the substance. And when I think of these four, I, I kind of clump them as the, the criteria that reflect craving and compulsion. Next slide. The next five are recurrent use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations, continued use despite recurring social or interpersonal issues due to use, important activities given up or reduced, recurrent use in physically hazardous situations, and persistent and recurrent physical or psychological difficulties from use. And I think of these as sort of the consequences and loss of control criteria. Next slide. So there are two more criteria that only sometimes count, and that's tolerance and withdrawal. So some substances, when they're used appropriately, lead to tolerance, meaning you need more of that substance for the, to achieve the same effect. And if you take it away, uh, a person 
experiences withdrawal, meaning that they feel sick when the substance is removed. But that doesn't always mean that somebody's addicted to that substance. So if I leave this webinar and I'm hit by a bus and I break a bunch of bones in my body and I'm in the hospital for two months getting morphine every day, I'll develop tolerance to that opioid and I, I will need more to, to achieve the same pain control over time. And if I'm discharged from the hospital and I don't have an opioid taper, I'll enter withdrawal. And that doesn't mean I'm addicted to that morphine. That means that my body is dependent on it. Now, if I leave the webinar and I start ordering morphine on the Internet for two months and I take it every day, I will also develop tolerance to that morphine and I will also enter withdrawal if I stop taking it. But in that case, because I'm not using it in a prescribed way, those two criteria count. Next slide. So knowing the criteria, the 11 criteria, we can diagnose opioid use disorder. A mild disorder is when someone meets two to three criteria, moderate, four to five, and severe is six or more. Next slide. Once we have diagnosed, we can treat. Treatment approaches for substance use disorders used to be dominated by abstinence-based approaches, meaning and abstinence meaning both don't use or drink at all, but also don't, don't take medications that might help you not do those things. However, medications to treat opioid use disorder have repeatedly been shown to decrease substance use, to increase retention and treatment, and to decrease mortality among individuals with opioid use disorder. They're really important to use when indicated. The first uh, that I'm going to talk about is methadone. It comes in a liquid or a pill form, and it's a full agonist at the opioid receptor. And what that means is that it sits on the receptor in the brain and activates it fully, just like morphine or oxycodone or heroin, but it has a very long half-life, so it sticks around at a steady state. And with regular dosing, a patient doesn't get euphoric, but his or her cravings are blocked. Now, it's only possible to prescribe methadone to treat an opioid use disorder from an opioid treatment program or what people often call a methadone maintenance clinic. So a doctor cannot prescribe it from his or her clinic when it's used to treat addiction. They can use it for pain, but not for addiction. And studies of methadone for opioid use disorder have demonstrated significantly decreased drug use and decreased mortality from opioid use disorder among patients treated with methadone. It also leads to decreases in new infections with HIV, hepatitis, and de decreased criminality. Buprenorphine is a partial agonist at the opioid receptor, which means that it occupies that same receptor as the other opioids, but only activates it partially. So patients generally get no euphoria, but their cravings are blocked. This medication can be prescribed from a doctor's office. But prescribers have to obtain what's called a data waiver, which is a special license to prescribe it. It takes eight hours of training, and then you can get that license. And they're limited in the number of patients they can treat. So the first year, they can treat 30. The second year, if they apply, they can treat 100. And then if they have a few special criteria, after that, they can treat 275 patients. This medication also cuts mortality by over half from opioid use disorder. Next slide. So those were the opioid agonists. 
Extended release naltrexone is another effective tool we used. It was approved in 2010 for opioid use disorder. It blocks opioid receptors. So in this cartoon, the red is the naltrexone blocking the receptor, and the light green are opioids trying unsuccessfully to kind of land on that receptor. It's an injection that lasts a month, and it has demonstrated efficacy in reducing return to illicit opioid use, increasing treatment retention, and reducing opioid craving. I'm not advancing on my screen. I'm going to assume that it's advancing. Okay, great. There it is. Uh, the last medication I want to talk about is naloxone. This is a medication that reverses overdose. It comes in multiple forms, as you can see on the screen. Wally and colleagues in Massachusetts demonstrated that communities that have naloxone distribution from multiple different types of sites have significantly decreased overdose rates. And Coffin and colleagues demonstrated that when providers in primary care clinics in San Francisco prescribe naloxone along with their opioid prescriptions, their patients on long-term opioids had 46% fewer opioid-related ER visits per month in the first six months after receipt of the prescription, and 63% fewer after one year when compared with patients who did not receive naloxone. It is an uh, incredibly important life-saving medication. Next slide. So let's put this all together with a case study. Diana was a 65-year-old female who was taking about 20 hydrocodone tablets a day, which she obtained from multiple providers and ERs when I met her. She stated that she started using pills about 15 years prior to meeting me after she broke her leg skiing. She found that the pills not only helped her acute leg pain, but they also eased some chronic shoulder pain and, surprisingly to her, eased her anxiety related to her work and her marriage as well. She told me that when she started using the pills, she took about five a day, um, but that she was taking more now to achieve the same effect, bringing her up to the 20 a day. She also told me that she had tried to cut down about two years prior because she was getting tired of the effort around having to get the pills, but as she tapered, she felt really sick. She had some diarrhea, she was anxious, she was restless, so she started increasing again. She told me that her husband hates it when she takes the uh, pills because he kind of spaces out and that he'd be angry if he knew how many pills she was actually taking. So her primary care physician discovered these multiple prescriptions, alerted the other providers, and sent her up to for an evaluation with me, and that's how I met her. On my exam, she met the criteria for a severe opioid use disorder. She'd been unable to quit down. She'd spent a lot of time obtaining the opioid. She craved it. She had a strong desire. She used to talk about how she would beg for pills from her providers. She continued to use despite uh, social and interpersonal problems with her husband. She had tolerance, and she experienced withdrawal. We started her on buprenorphine, which alleviated her cravings, and it also helped her shoulder pain. She was not interested in treatment for substance use disorder, sort of a formal treatment, but she was open to individual and marriage counseling that touched on that use disorder and touched on some of the other stressors that contributed to her desire to use. And she's been attending those sessions regularly. She also got an naloxone kit. Next slide. So just quick summary. Uh, opioid use disorder affects older adults. The issue is growing, and it's deadly. We diagnose substance use disorders using the DSM-5 criteria, and we have medications that treat opioid use disorder 
and they're life-saving and we should need to use them. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Loon Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations in care models. To learn more about our current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care.